Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Australia reacts to Chinese tariffs. Alcohol consumption down by 8% in 2020 globally. Although UK supermarkets see sales rise by a third and are upbeat about 2021. German wine event Provine 2021 cancelled. The Court of Master Sommeliers appoints a new board. And as ever, our wine of the week. So let's kick off as we always do with our week in wine. Now, Matthew, you had a lot of teaching going on this week. I know you were packing a lot of boxes, a lot of boxes of bubbly, in fact. So what were you up to? Well, this weekend I was teaching via Zoom, a WCT diploma for sparkling wine, and actually provided wine for the students myself from Blackpool Nuts Wine Club. So a nice selection of sparkling wine across the world. And then tasting those wines with students uh, virtually. A lot of fun, unable to taste in person right now, but able to discuss those different wines and having the same bottles and the same wines um, as we tasted. And of course, having sparkling wine on a Saturday morning was no hardship. No, and I got to benefit from all the remnants of the leftover bottles. And it was quite interesting, really. You had a really nice selection, Um, some half bottles and some full 750s. Uh, so you really kind of did a little ad hoc there to make sure that your students uh, got all the hit all the different styles that you need to know when it comes to the world of sparkling wine. Yeah, sparkling wine is actually one of the hardest exams to prepare for in terms of finance and, and of logistics, uh, just because once you open a bottle, that's it. It's got to be consumed within 24 hours, really, in comparison to fortified wine, which can last months, or with regular wine, which you can now caravan. With this sparkling wine, once that wine's open, it's open. So I did try and find some smaller bottles uh, for students to uh, try from, although there is the risk of uh, the wines being a bit more oxidative uh, than they should be in those smaller bottles. But sparkling wine, particularly champagne, comes in so many shapes and sizes. It is interesting to try to see how a wine tastes different in a smaller bottle or in a regular bottle. Definitely. And we do know that the folks there at Coravin are trying to come up with a Coravin that will actually be able to work on sparkling wines as well. So we'll have to stay tuned to those developments. Could transform the whole tasting as we know it when it comes to, to bubbly. Right. And there are very expensive methods of preserving sparkling wine, but um, we can't afford those. And I have to say, once a bottle of bubbles is open, we do manage to uh, get through it. That's true. And you can always put a stopper on it. But uh, I think it was Julia Coney that told me that if you're more than half a bottle in, then you might as well just drink the whole bottle because you're not going to save anything by uh, trying to stopper it up after that point. That is true of any wine. And now on with the news. The Australian wine industry continued to react to the news announced a week and a half ago on huge tariffs of up to 212% imposed by the Chinese authorities on Australian wine. The impact has been immediate. Treasury Wine Estates announced the withdrawal of Penfold's range from the Chinese market and will reallocate the wines to growing markets such as the US. Treasury had specific sanctions of 169% imposed on them and the share price has fallen dramatically since the news. China accounts for 25% of exports in terms of volume and 39% in terms of value of the Penfolds luxury range. So this is a huge blow to Treasury and will require careful repositioning of the brands. 
Furthermore, the U.S. is an awkward market, partly because of skepticism around Australian wine, but also because it's a market that's been flooded by the large volume vintages in California of 2018 and 19. Regardless of the China tariffs, Treasury has already been repositioning Penfolds as not just Australian, with wines from Napa Valley and Champagne in the pipeline. Meanwhile, the Australian wine industry has received support from politicians. The tariffs are expected to remain in place until the end of March, but could be extended until August. So that just begs the question, what's next for the Aussie wine industry? It's difficult. They've just lost a huge market. Um, with these massive tariffs being imposed. That's why Treasury are repositioning and looking towards the US as a market where they can uh, kind of sell these wines instead of in China, because the US is a market which is focused around luxury to a certain extent, so Penfolds fits into that grain. Yes, but we know why it is a bit awkward, um, just because, you know, when the U.S. consumer thinks about Australian wine, I think they're generally thinking about that really entry level. Just think Yellowtail, for example, you know, critters on the label, screw cap, very easy, bottom of the shelf in the supermarket. Uh, I think they have their work cut out uh, for them to kind of convince the U.S. market that, you know, there is incredible luxury available from Australia. Yes, and I think um, although the the Treasury have repositioned themselves in the last couple of weeks to react to these tariffs, uh, the US market is one that they have been targeting for quite some time and moving away from those entry-level wines towards luxury and higher-priced um, wines. So this is kind of an ongoing process which has been accelerated by the tariffs imposed by China. But um, again, to lose that market in such a way, maybe it's only temporary. And this relates to other products as well, not just wine for Australia. So it is a huge blow to their economy and their exports. Well, if it means there will be more Hill of Grace available to me, then I'm all for it. Yeah, I'll put that on your credit card. International Wine Spirits Research this week reported on figures on alcohol consumption across the world based on an assessment of 20 key markets. They predict that consumption will globally be down by 8%, although it is not consistent across markets. Countries where on-site consumption traditionally dominates have been particularly hard hit, with Spain predicted to see consumption fall by 16%. Australia, however, which we've just been reporting on, is a place where at-home drinking is more common, and that's predicted to see a decrease of just 1%. The US and Canada, meanwhile, are expected to see a rise in consumption of 2%, in large part due to the demand for lowish alcohol hard seltzers and low or no alcohol beer. In light of that trend, the Lagunitas Brewery, based here in Petaluma, California, has launched its first non-alcohol IPA brewed with Mosaic, Citra and Columbus hops, and is designed to be similar in style to its regular IPAs, one of the most popular styles here in California, and it's been launched in 355 milliliter bottles, which is ideal for home consumption. So whether these trends have been driven by COVID-19 or are coincidental, 2021 looks set to be a year of experimentation, both for the industry and consumers. Supermarket sales in the UK rose by a third in November, while Pierpaolo Petrassi MW of the upscale UK supermarket Waitrose reported that 2020 had changed people's drinking habits due to home consumption with a rise in canned wine and bag and box. 
He predicted that consumers will continue to experiment with drinks at home. For example, sales of dry styles of sherry have risen as younger drinkers play around with the different versions of martinis at home. And he also commented on the increase in low or no alcohol drinks, a trend in the UK just as it is in the US. So we've been hearing about no loaf for quite some time, the last few years, it's been trending. Uh, And now I I suppose with lockdown and and people at home and thinking about moderation, I I think it's even more attractive uh, to consumers. And these low alcohol wines and beers also fit in with that sort of healthy, low calorie trend. Right. The low calorie thing, I think, is kind of an irrelevant marketing pitch. But the lower alcohol, I understand for those reasons you've mentioned, people are, are unable to kind of socialize as much. It's probably a good thing that uh, wines and beers are lower in alcohol, although it does still does beg the question of how to produce a really good wine that's lower in alcohol. I'm not convinced that's possible. But then with beer, the trend has been for higher alcohol, and maybe it's a good thing that there is a trend to reduce those levels of alcohol, especially here in California. Right. I saw just in the last few years since we've lived here, the shift of, you know, it used to be 5% was a typical ABV that you would see on a a beer can. And nowadays, you know, most of the beers that you bring home, they're 6.878%, which, you know, if you're in in addition to that, uh, they are served in pint-sized cans. So you get, so larger format, higher alcohol, uh, so maybe it is for the best that their, you know, breweries are looking towards more of these uh, lower alcohols, smaller formats. Yes, and all these trends that we've been reporting on throughout the year during the COVID-19 crisis, it is going to be interesting to see how they develop, whether some of the trends remain or people revert to how they were before. You know, I hope that people get out when they can. Um, I saw in the UK today the first vaccines were administered to some uh, particularly old people. And so we feel that there is some progress. But at the same time, California is entering a period of pretty strict lockdowns. It's going to be really tough for restaurants and bars over the Christmas period. So hopefully um, once this is over, people won't be too used to um, staying at home. The pod reported last week on the latest news on wine trade events, with Benidoli postponed until June. Moments after the pod was published, uh, while we were sleeping in our beds here in California, uh, we learned about the cancellation of one of the biggest events of them all, Provine in Dusseldorf, Germany. In October, organizers had said the event would go ahead, albeit scaled down and lasting five rather than three days to prevent overcrowding. However, this week the event was cancelled due to rising cases in Germany. It is now scheduled to take place in March 2022, and we hope that everything will be back to some kind of normal by then. Well, let's hope so. That's over a year away. So this is big news for producers and distributors who rely on Provine for networking and promoting their wines, but at least this decision gives clarity and tells everyone to plan for 2022 rather than 2021. But at the same time, as we were just referencing to in the previous piece, the question is, what will life be like when things um, return to some kind of normal? Will these events remain central or will people have kind of got over them and thought about different ways of uh, promoting their wines? Well, 2021 will definitely continue uh, with this trend of virtual events. And no doubt uh, Provine, the cancellation of this event, 
will spark a lot of you know regional entities, wineries to find other ways to connect with new importers and new buyers in their export markets. And I think this is a great opportunity for a lot of platforms out there who have who have not only strived to deliver high quality conferences online, but also trade shows. Uh, so this, you know, these opportunities to network, to schedule different meetings with uh, different entities. Uh, I think this is something that a lot of uh, virtual platforms are looking to do, and they're getting better and better. So we'll probably see quite a bit of that in 2021. And it will be interesting, as you say, to see if these are trends that will continue far beyond the pandemic, because, you know, we, we're thinking about uh, sustainability and, and carbon footprint and flying all over the world uh, multiple times a year just isn't a way to live sustainably, really. The pod has been reporting on the scandals which have engulfed the court of master sommeliers due to the New York Times's exposure of sexual harassment by several male MSs. Eleven master sommeliers have been suspended so far by the court, with another Devin Brogley resigning his position as chair, and Jeff Cruth also resigning from the court entirely. The board decided to resign in order to allow elections for a completely new board, which was chosen last week. There are now 11 MSs on the new board, which includes three women, plus four other non-MSs, and there is also no independent CEO to oversee operations. And master sommeliers are now no longer allowed to have relationships with their students. Well, I'm glad they finally put that in writing. So it looks like the court is trying to move from these revelations by appearing more accountable and diverse. Um, but I must confess, the I, I was a bit surprised by this the reveal of this new board. Uh, it's still quite a white, uh, male-dominated one. Uh, but there are three women. Uh, two Asian Americans and two gay members, uh, which the court was keen to emphasize, of course. Hopefully the, the messaging from the court over this new board is met with a genuine commitment to accountability and diversity. Well, that's necessary for it to survive, isn't it, Katie? Yes, it's clear there is no other option these days, just as, you know, I think people are becoming more conscious of uh, sustainability of carbon footprint of what's going on with the planet. I think that's happening in the same way with society, uh, with racial justice, with gender inequality. You know, all of these things are are here to stay. I, I really believe, and all of these organizations are going to have to reflect that if they are to survive. And now, Katie, for our wine of the week, which isn't a wine. What is it? Oh, one of my favorite libations. So this is the Acha Vermouth Blanco from Basque Country. And for our listeners who don't know, the Basque Country is in the north of Spain, uh, also southern France. But this specific wine is from the Spanish side of the border. And inspired by the comments on people experimenting with making cocktails at home, this week we decided to feature a vermouth instead of wine. Uh, which is a fortified, aromatized wine, which works fantastically on its own and is also used in cocktails such as the martini. Our featured vermouth here this week is from Spain, and the producer is called Acha, a Basque family who have been making vermouth since the 19th century. 
Uh, vermouth in Spain is massive, uh, as Matthew and I can attest. Back in my days teaching English in Spain, I remember when I was first introduced to it, and you know, watching all the older Spanish women in the cafes. Uh, I think it'd be about mid morning. I would say ten thirty, eleven a.m. You know, before the the later lunch, but you just you need a little bit of libations right in the mid morning, and they would be enjoying their vermouths. And I thought, wow, that's that's how you have to live, right? That's it. A little, a few crisps on the side, a nice vermouth, one big block of ice. And they were set for their morning. And on tap as well. It wasn't just vermouth from the bottle. It was draft vermouth. And we were in Spain this time last year. And we um, enjoyed a lot of vermouth while we were there. It is very popular in bar to bar. Uh, Some of it's quite basic. It's a lot of it Italian. But there's a lot of very good local or regional vermouth as well. And this is a really good example of that. Definitely. And, you know, the category has undergone a huge revival in the last 20 years with an emphasis on quality and tradition. Uh, Like with most vermouths, the recipe for this one is secret, but it does, as vermouth must, have wormwood, as well as gentian and bitter orange. And it's that bitterness we love. It balances the sweetness and gives the vermouth a drying sensation. Um, I love drinking vermouth as an aperitif. Uh, just really gets the appetite going. Uh, so yeah, it's always, you know, once there's a bottle of vermouth open in the house, Matthew, I, I have to confess, it doesn't last long. Yes, which is dangerous because the alcohol is a little bit higher. The, the, the alcohol for this is 15%. Those botanicals just give so much, so much aromatics to the vermouth. Uh, really floral and with those bitters and herbs and spices, really complex, but still very fresh as well. And have that little bit of sweetness to give it richness, but uh, that bitterness just giving it a drying sensation. Spanish vermouth is completely transformed from something that people didn't really know much about to actually being one of the most interesting styles of drinks out there. And this is a fantastic example. And it's all about the local family, because it's local botanicals and the family recipe. What's not to love? Yes, and while we love drinking it on its own, we cannot discount uh, how important it is for cocktails, uh, which we also love to do. One like this one, with the acha in particular, I felt that the botanicals, they were so intense and uh, the flavors were so complex that, you know, it's really just enjoyable on its own. Yes, it could should probably should be used in a small amount in a cocktail because it might actually add too much to the cocktail. And if you're intrigued by the vermouth, wait till you try their pasharan a local Basque liqueur based on slow berries, which is equally irresistible. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. Uh, So this is our second week on our new day, Wednesday. Uh, So we appreciate you all following along and hope that this new day works with your calendars. As always, we appreciate any ratings, reviews. Um, That's how people can find us. And and that's how we intend to grow this podcast so that more people can listen to the news and find out what's going on in the wine and drinks business. Correct. And we're here to talk about everything from tariffs to vermouth and back again. We're uh, all encompassing. We appreciate all our listeners. And here's to next week. Cheerio.